So six months ago, I believe it, six months ago, I started a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we've taken this long intentionally because this is weighty stuff. This is hard, hard work stuff. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know that they are utterly bankrupt before a holy God. And blessed are those who mourn, who mourn their sin. And know that it's not just those superficial acts, but sin has penetrated their heart and corrupted who they are. And blessed are the meek, the people who know that they have no way of making themselves righteous before a holy God, but they have to entrust themselves fully to this God, whether he saves them or damns them. They have no other option but to entrust themselves to him. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for his righteousness, because they will be filled and they will be merciful and they will be made pure in heart and they will be persecuted. And blessed are you when people persecute you, insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil because of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I said, we all said, we saw this, this laid out over multiple weeks, that this is the Christian life. This is the life that Christ lived, and these are signposts marking the way to what it looks like to follow Christ to his death and ultimately to heaven, to his glory. That this is what it should look like, and the first thing we notice is that this is not some outward work. What he immediately wants to do is he wants to cut to the heart do you realize that your hearts are corrupted before a holy God? You are bankrupt and you need to mourn your position so that you can be filled with His righteousness. You need to entrust yourself fully to Him so that you can be filled with His righteousness so He can make you merciful, pure in spirit, so that He can allow you to withstand the persecution. And He said, don't think that you can do this by following a bunch of laws. You know, you've heard that it was said, don't, don't murder. Everyone knows that. But do you think just going through life and not murdering is going to make you the type of person that God has called you to be? No. you got to deal with the anger in your heart. And you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But do you think just because you go through life and don't sleep with someone other than your spouse, that that's going to make you the life and the freedom that you're called to? No, you've got to deal with the lust in your heart. And you've heard that it was said, don't get a divorce and don't break your oath. But the core of faithfulness and the love of truth that God is calling you to is so much deeper than just following a bunch of rules. Jesus says, I, you have to deal with your heart. Your heart is broken. It's bankrupt. Your heart has to be changed. And don't think that a bunch of religious things are going to fix this for you. People run to religion, but that just makes them hypocrites. They run to, oh, I'm gonna, if I give enough money, that will make me good. If I fast, if I pray loudly at church, that will make me acceptable to God. And he says, that's what the hypocrites do. So, a couple years ago, I read a really excellent book. Not a Christian book, but an excellent book that I would recommend to all of you. It's called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard by Chip and Dan Heath. These are two just genius business and educational leaders. In this book, they have this book about how to change, both personally, organizationally. How do you change something like government, where it seems impossible to change? The whole system's against you. 
How do you change a school system with all the tenure and all the, the unions and all the stuff like that? How do you change your own life? And when change is hard, how do you change? And they have a really helpful category that they came up with. Not biblical, but helpful. They said, you need to, you need to immediately see what is TBU. True, but useless. So there's a lot of things when you want to change that you see all the problems out there, but none of those problems, fixating on those problems, that's true, but useless. It will not help you change. And at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, if we just plowed through it, it kind of feels like that. You're like, okay, great. I recognize it. I admit it. My heart is corrupt for all the way to the core. I'm broken. I can't save myself. I... I I have a lustful, adulterous, lying, selfish, prideful heart, and it is broken. Are you just trying to make me feel bad? What are we supposed to do? How in the world can I lead my heart to be that vision of what Christ lays out, of Christ's heart? A life that is free from those things. How could I possibly change that heart? And so far, we haven't had a lot of answers, just a lot of reasons to feel bad about ourselves. It's TBU. But today, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24, Jesus is going to get imminently practical on us. He's going to say, you want to deal with your heart. You want, you want to, you want to deal with your heart. You want to change yourself from the inside out. First of all, it all starts with, it's got to be a work of God. That's all going to be admitted all the way through, not only here, but everywhere. But if you want something you can do today, to start changing your heart, the way it's forming, the direction it's going. Let's talk about money. Let's talk about money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. If you have your text, you'll want to open it up because we're going to dig into this deep today. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Let's think about this. Okay, we're we're on a mountainside in ancient Galilee. All these peasants and a mixture of people, crowds are around Jesus, his disciples, and the crowds came to him, and he began to teach them. So, so what does he mean by treasures on earth? Well, they did not have a cash society. They'd never heard of anything like a stock market. So when he talks about treasures... Immediately, there's only a few categories of treasures for them. One is clothing. We talked about this a few weeks ago, giving your cloak away. Your cloak was worth a ton of money. You remember Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat? Right? It was, why was that such an envy? Because it was worth so much. I mean, a cloak would be equivalent to a car in today's terms. Your cloak was worth a ton of money. So you have clothing. What's the other? It's agricultural, right? These are farmer, peasant type people. So you have grain and wine and fish and cattle. So if you want to say the most unimaginable wealth today, we talk about winning the lottery, right? Back then, they would say Psalm 50. When you want to talk about wealth that you cannot imagine, you can't fathom it, you say, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That is wealth. That's the wealth of God. And the last thing, of course, was precious metals. They had coins, but those coins were actually made out of precious metal. So they had gold, silver, and things like that. And Jesus looks at this crowd and says, So you're saving up this stuff. Do you know your coat? It's going to become food for moths. They're going to eat it. 
You, you know all those cattle you have? Some wild animal could come in at any moment and just devour it. You, you know that, that precious metal you have. Okay, so great. You've taken it and your only home security system is to bury it in the middle of your house and you live in a mud brick house. Thieves, they can dig right through that wall any night and come steal it. Everything you're working so hard for right now, everything that you're currently pursuing is either going to end up buried with dirty diapers and old cell phones or owned by someone else. That's what he's saying. Everything. I, I don't care if you buy the perfectly built house. I don't care if Brian built your house. It is perfect. It's solid as could be. You could use it forever, right? I, I don't care if you wax that car every week and if, if you dry clean only. And I don't care if you wash on gentle cycle. And I don't care what you do. Everything you own, everything you can see right now is going to end up in a landfill. Buried with dirty diapers, old cell phones, or owned by someone else. That's the world we live in. If you look at our world, you know this is true. Everything's headed this way. When Jenny and I lived in Dallas, we lived behind Mary Susan, who was a really sweet lady. We lived in a little back house, and she lived in the main house. So we lived officially in the cabana, pool house. And I was her cabana boy. So it was a great, great deal. We got to live in this neighborhood, this amazing neighborhood for free because we helped take care of the property. And Mary Susan was really sweet to us. But she, when they, when they, this house was a spectacle. Like when you went in, when they originally built the house, her and her first husband built the house. She's an interior decorator and her first husband was an oil tycoon worth tens of millions of dollars. Uh, tens of millions. Old pictures, do you see them? Like every year they either had a new Rolls or Bentley. I'm not exaggerating. So you go in this house and they literally, when she had it built, has like silk padding covering the walls, has gold fixtures, has imported pieces of marble and stuff from, from Asia, has everything you can imagine. They, they literally spared no expense in building this house. But her husband left and 25 years passed. And while we were living there, in that little back house, regularly contractors would come up to her and say, you know, I'd really like to make an offer on your house. Because they wanted to tear down her nasty, sad old house and build a real mansion there. You know, 25 years ago, it was actually featured in Better Homes and Garden. 25 years ago, it was the envy of Dallas wealth. And that's the way wealth goes. It's great for a day. But in the end, it's going to end up being a teardown so someone can build a real mansion there. We all see this on our own scale. Things don't hold their value. They don't last. Jesus is saying that our reality, this is it. This is the way it is with all earthly treasures, with everything that you can see. The Apostle Paul will make this clear. Let me, let me read this to you. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses 2 Corinthians 4.18, it says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Listen to this. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Take a look around you. Look around. When you drive home today, take it all in. Look at everything you can see right now. He's saying, this world has an expiration date, and so does everything in it. Even you. Even you. Before we move on, I do want to point out one thing. 
He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Let's just back up here and not be super spiritual. He calls them treasures. That they do have some value. So I get it. I've seen the way Jenny bounces around the house when she gets a new pair of jeans. I I have personally had the opportunity to drive a Mercedes-Benz SL500 through Dallas. And I have experienced what Germans call Farfignugan. I mean, I I feel more powerful, more sexy. I feel more important when I drive that car. I get it. Stuff it does have value. I I love to be able to provide good things for my kids, for my wife. I love to, to give things. I love to eat good things. I love to own cool gadgets. I, I get it. They do have a value. They are treasures for now. He's not saying they're trash. He's just saying they will be. They will be. They will be. If I spend my life chasing these things, in the end, my life is going to end up with them in destruction. So, a couple weeks ago, I got to go on vacation. got to visit my grandmother. She's turning 90 this year. And it was a really sweet time, me and my brother there with her. And uh, the sad thing, the difficult thing about getting that age is that you start burying all of your friends. And all of your family and everyone you know from your, that generation. And uh, while we were there, she was telling us about, I believe he's my great, great uncle. So way back. And his wife had just passed away. They both, both passed away within weeks of each other. And in life, they had made millions of dollars. And they had uh, something that my, my grandmother just loves. They collected antiques. She's like a, an antique rogue show junkie, okay? So she loved all their stuff, all this. They had literally traveled the world and spent a lifetime building this amazing collection of antiques. And and she described the scene for me. That after they died, their kids, basically she shows up and she sees their driveway and she sees card tables, folding tables. And the collection that they had spent a lifetime putting together He's out there on card tables right next to the junk that they had picked up at Walmart the week before. It's yard sale junk. Their whole life. Years. Millions of dollars. Don't store up these things. Don't invest your life in things that are going to be torn down and sold at a yard sale. Don't give your life to something that could be buried in a pit with dirty diapers and cell phones. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not and cannot break in and steal. You see, he's not, he's not against treasure. He just says there's a better one. There's something better than all the things you can own in this world. There's something better that you should be saving up for. Invest your life in these. Your ambition, your hope, your concern, your passion, your dreams, and yes, your money. Invest it in things that can't be stolen from you. Invest your life in things that are going to last forever. So, your job. Work a job. Work it hard. But use your job to make the world more just, more loving, more God-honoring. So... Own a house, own the biggest house you can and use it for God's kingdom and glory. 
Give to those who can't can't give back to you. Serve those. Love people with it. Own a car? Sure, own a car. But use it for things that will extend His kingdom and glorify His name. Use your time, your creativity, your passions for God. He's not against that stuff. Earthly treasures is just how you use it. You know what my fear is today? My fear is that you're going to leave here and think, oh, Paul preached on money. This is not a sermon on money. I, I, we're not going to take a collection at the end of the service. I'm not, I'm not doing a building campaign right now. We, we have, we have surplus of money at the church right now. I, I don't need a luxury jet to go take the gospel to the islanders. We are well cared for. I don't care about your money. And neither does Jesus. He doesn't need it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Oh, but He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And He knows that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Jesus is saying here something very interesting. He's saying, your heart follows your treasure. Your heart Follows your treasure. So your heart, when you think in Jewish terms, your heart is everything you think about, everything you desire, is in, in all your actions, your decisions. So it's going to be your, your thoughts, your mind, and your will. The heart is all-encompassing from a Jewish perspective. So where, where your heart is, your thoughts and your desires and your choices in life, where those are, they follow your treasure. Now, if I was on that mountainside, I don't know about you, but this strikes me as a little odd. I have to confess that I would be the first person on that mountainside to say, excuse me, Jesus, uh, you made a mistake there. I, I know you're God and you're not supposed to do that, but I'm pretty good at these things. Let me tell you what you messed up here. That's that's actually backwards. You meant to say your where your treasure, your treasure follows your heart, right? Everybody knows this. Your treasure follows your heart. So so if your heart is in something, you're going to invest your money in it, right? This is everywhere, even in the Sermon on the Mount, this is everywhere in the New Testament, that whatever you love, whatever you think about, that's what you're going to do. Your actions will pour out of, right? So if you want to deal with this problem of adultery, you don't deal with the action, you deal with the heart first. Because where your heart is, it'll take care of the action. That, that your actions always follow your heart in almost every case in the New Testament. That if you want it real change in your life, you deal with the heart first, and then the actions take care of themselves. But Jesus says, no, no, here's one case that's different, and I want you to pay attention to this, because this is going to be a key to how we live. He's going to say, your heart follows your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The commentator, scholar, John Stott, gives a really good picture of this. And I want you to hear this. He, he He's unpacking this. It's going to be like, what you own, your treasure, affects your soul. The things that you invest your life in, your money in, your property in, form your soul. Let's be a little more clear. The things that you purchase, the things that you work for, the things that you take credit out to pay for, they lead your heart. To put it more bluntly, every dollar you spend, every purchase you sit online and study out and think about purchasing, every bill you pay, every purchase you make, every dollar you save leads your heart somewhere. 
John Stott, that the, the commentator, he he uses this language which I think is really helpful. He says it's got a tether. It tethers your heart. Your heart is tethered to treasure. I was afraid if I just say this, you wouldn't capture this. So I've asked Ashley. Ashley, we come up. I, I want I want you to introduce to everyone here, Ashley. Hi, Ashley. She's my she's our example, our model. Come on, come on over here, right in the center. So this is Ashley, and this is Ashley's heart. Hmm? And yes, she is going to give it to Brian. <laughs> but what the scriptures are saying that as Ashley goes through life and she sees, you know, I really need more money in my wallet. That's really, really important to me. Uh, I better, I better choose this job over this job because that will, that will give me more money. Then it tethers itself to her heart. And then she goes on and she sees this car. And this is a nice car, friends. I don't know if you can see this. This is actually my son's car. You know? But this is a nice car. And she says, wow, I would look good in that car. I would be someone in that car. So so she buys that car. And that, that little payment that she starts making as she's driving around, it tethers itself to her heart. And then she says, wow, I really need to update my cell phone. And so it tethers itself to her heart. And then she says, I need a house. And in my eyes, it's a castle. It's actually Dora's castle, but but for now, it will be Ashley's. So it tethers itself to her heart, you see? And then she sees this shirt for Brian. She says, he would look good in that. I want to go on a date with the guy that wears that shirt. So so she buys it, and it tethers itself. Well, it did. It's just going to hang itself on her heart. And the thing is, is her heart is now tethered with hundreds, and every purchase... Every every decision she makes, every investment of her life she makes forms another line, another strand, tethering itself, dragging her down to earth. Every earthly treasure she invests in is another line that tethers her to this earth. So when God says, Ashley, I really want you to go here with your life. I, I want you to move across the state and do this. She says, oh, I'd, I'd like to. But I'm tied down here. I can't leave my job. I've got to make this payment. I need this much money. I've already made this bill. I can't do this, God. God says, I want you to drop everything and serve your neighbor right here. She says, I can't. I have to work overtime to, to keep all the stuff that I've already committed to. She, God says, I want you to take a break and listen to me. She says, I can't. I can't. I can't. I want you to notice something. When Jesus Christ called his first followers, of which we follow a very long line, what's the first thing he told them? He says, if you're going to follow me, you have to cut every line. Every line. Your money, your house, even your family. You have to cut every line. You can take nothing with you. And was he doing that to punish them? Was he doing that because he's mean? No. Because he knew that if they were going to follow him and have the freedom in life to live what life was all about, they couldn't have a life that was tied down. Instead, he says, invest in heavenly things. I'll make you fishers of men. Invest your life in things that are going to call you up, that are going to raise you up, and your heart is now tied to heaven so that the things on earth have no effect on you. And this is what we see in the person of Jesus Christ. We see a heart that is entirely free, 
Entirely free from materialism. Entirely free from this world. A heart that can go anywhere for God and does. A heart that you can take nothing from. And that is the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty that he's called us to. To be truly free from this world. A heart that is tied and is tethered. But it's tethered to eternal things. Thanks. I don't know personally how anyone could sincerely look at the life of Christ and not say, He is better. He's better than that junk. Why would I give myself to that stuff? But the problem is, is we don't see. We don't see. The next verse. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What's he saying here? What, what in the world does, does this eyesight stuff with lamps and eyeballs have to do with money and my heart? Well, it has everything to do with it. L- let's just do this for a minute. If we were to take a, um, a, a quick survey, anonymous survey, don't have to tell anybody your results. I would pass around papers to all of you and say, please put a mark next to the sins with which you struggle. And you were to sit and think about this for a little all pride, lying, anger, lust, envy, greed, selfishness, stealing, gossip. These are, you know, common everyday things, classic biblical sins. And you were to all nobody's going to see your answers. We can even like hide it. I can tell you what's going to go on in your heart right now because I, I've talked to you. I know my own heart because Jesus knows your heart. You're going to see pride and you're going to be like, ooh, I guess I better mark that one. Most of you. Some of you, no. Lying, some of you, well, that wouldn't even occur to you. But some of you are like, ah, sometimes I struggle with white lies, fibs, things. Anger, there's some of you. Lust, half of you are going to immediately check that. I'm not sure about the women. And then <laughs> envy, selfishness. And some of you who are really aware of yourselves will say, yeah, selfishness, stealing, and gossip, those. But you know what I can tell you? Just experientially, nobody would mark greed. Nobody. Now, I, there might be one person in here who's the exception to the rule. But generally speaking, in fact, I've gone through my life as a, as mainly as a pastor or seminarian, and all the time I used to go work as a valet, and so valets knew I was in seminary, so they thought I was a priest. I'm like, not really, but they would they would want to confess their sins to me. I'm like, eh. and uh, and I know. I mean, if we were, to, I've met thousands of people who struggle with pride, lying, anger, lust, hundreds and thousands of lust. Selfishness is so common. I don't know what to do with it. I mean, all of these things, I've met people in every category that, that they say, yes, my heart is prideful and I want to be fixed. My heart is lustful. My heart is selfish. But I've never met a single person who says, yes, I'm a greedy person. My heart is greedy and I need to deal with it. Now, why is that? Isn't that odd? Now, I want you to reflect on this. Just think of this room right now. It, nobody in here thinks of themselves as a greedy person. And yet, where do we live? We live in the wealthiest county, in a wealthy state, and arguably the wealthiest country in the world, in what is the wealthiest era of human history ever. Can, can I put this just in a little perspective? In our, you know, professional, upper middle class world here, we have more disposable income per person than any other people group in any other time ever. 
But none of us are greedy. No. Why is that? Greed makes you blind. If greed is in your life, the lights turn down, your vision's all blurred, you can't see greed. The first sign that you're greedy is that you don't know you're greedy. How about that? So if you don't think you're greedy, you're in big trouble right now. And how does this work? I mean, it's simple, right? If you come up to me and say, Paul, I've seen your new house and that patio is pretty nice. I think you're greedy, son. I'd be like, ah, let me think about this. And then immediately I'd bring to mind all of you who make three, four, five, and ten times the amount I make. And I'd say, see, those people are greedy. I'm not greedy. In 2.5 seconds, I've assured myself I am not greedy because I know everyone else who's greedy around me. And this works at every single level. Again, when we lived in Dallas, we lived behind a millionaire on this gorgeous property. And sometimes we would go and she would invite us to go spend time with her friends. And she would always say to us, let's go see how the other half live. And we're like, what What does that mean? We were honestly confused. Because, you know, we literally had nothing and lived behind a millionaire. We thought she was fabulously wealthy. But she thought she was normal. Now, her friends, they were the wealthy ones. And it's true. Her friends were fabulously wealthy. Her friends were ridiculously wealthy. So compared to them, she was average. She was just scraping by. I mean, she couldn't afford multiple homes. She could only afford one multi-million dollar home. She could only afford a Jaguar, not a Bentley anymore. She was poor among her friends. And we do this at every level. The Africans point to our homeless people and say they have the luxury of food and most of them shelter every night. And then the, the homeless people look at the working class people and say, look, they can afford cell phones and TV. They have money to spare. And then they look at the managers and the professionals and they say, how could they possibly spend that much money on themselves? And then they look at the CEOs and, and they say, look at those CEOs. They make 10 times the amount I make. They're the wealthy, greedy ones. And then the CEOs look at other CEOs until you finally get to like Mark Zuckerberg and, and Warren Buffett. They're the only like two rich men in the universe, I guess. All the rest of us are just poor. But notice what no one's done, which is shocking in this context. None of us have compared our lives to Jesus Christ. Now, don't you think that's odd? Isn't the whole point is that our lives should look like Christ? That his call was to follow me, to do what I did, to live like me, to, to take on my yoke, to carry my burden? But we can't compare ourselves to Christ because, well, he was poor. <laughs> And he gave away everything. And when we compare our lives to Christ, we have two options. We either become profoundly generous or we recognize that we are greedy. We have greedy, greedy hearts that clings to our earthly stuff. This is not a guilt trip. Do not try and ease your conscience that you're not greedy by going out and writing a big fat check somewhere right now. Well, actually, you can go write a big fact check. But don't let it ease your conscience. The problem that Christ is dealing with right now is not about the amount of money you're giving. It's about where your heart is. Have you tied your heart? Have you tethered your heart to his kingdom and to him? Or are you tied down by all these things? Jesus doesn't need your money. He wants you. But he cannot have you if money has you. 
No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Masters, this is the language of masters and slaves, of ownership, where you own a person. I want you to notice this. Money and God have this in common. They will both own you. They will master you. There's no such thing as serving God and money. Both of them will own you. It's one or the other. Both God and money will promise you protection and security. Both God and money will promise you value and meaning in life. Both God and money will promise you joy. Both God and money will promise to give you an abundant life. And both God and money will rule over you. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Why? Because because it's putting money in the place of God. It's trusting money to do what only God can do in your life. And let me just say, money is a horrible God. It will give you pleasure for a time. It'll give you that high, that rush of a pay raise or a new purchase. It does. But then like a some type of crack addict, you have to come back. You come down off that high, you have to come back for another hit. Money will let you down over and over and over again. And yes, it will bring you popularity and new friends so long as you worship money. But if you lose that money, you lose your friends, you lose that popularity. And it will give you joy for a time. But in the end, money, along with everything else in this world, is going to end in destruction. And it will drag your heart down with it. Money is a horrible God. But look at Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, He is the eternal Son of God. He has everything. Everything is held together in His being. Everything's created in Him and by Him and for Him and through Him, Colossians tells us. He has all things, all joy, all happiness, yet for your sakes, your sakes, He became poor, took on flesh 2,000 years ago, and He became the son of a peasant, a construction worker named Joe. And in his life, he owned almost nothing except the clothes on his back. And on the cross, in his death, he even lost that. He even gave up his own life for us. Why? So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here's the irony. You learn that the true riches in this life are not found in all the stuff you possess but in your selfless acts of love for God and others. Those are the things that we'll take with us through eternity. We have to choose. Who do you want to follow? Who are you going to worship? Who can tell you where you're going to work and where you're going to live? Who can tell you what you're going to drive and what you're going to do and what you're going to eat after church today? Who can tell you how to spend your money and how to spend your life and your time and your passions and your desires? Who can tell you how much to invest? Is it money in the world or is it God? Those are your two choices. And Jesus says you have to choose. You cannot do both. I know that many of you have never made this choice before. No one's even told you you've had to make a choice for some of you. And I'm not going to pretend like it's easy. I mean, you can see money. You can feel the pleasure of money immediately. You can know the security of money. And Jesus, right now, he's unseen. And this world that I'm talking about is unseen. But I plead with you, just open your eyes. Look around. You know where everything in this world is heading. You don't have to be a genius or even a Christian 
to know where this is heading. So all this stuff is going to be with diapers and cell phones are owned by someone else, sold at a yard sale on card tables. Jesus Christ tells us how to decide. He says you need to come to him and say, I'm poor in spirit. I am bankrupt and I have nothing to give you. Nothing I have is actually mine to keep. That you need to mourn your sin, mourn the fact that you've trusted yourself and money more than him. And that you need to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. That you need to say, what you have is what I want. I need your life. And only you can give it to me. I can't do it on my own. And if you do that, that's called just accepting Christ. It's called repenting and believing, trusting in Christ. If you do that, he promises that he will send you his spirit. That he'll work in you. That he'll give you new life. That he'll start to renew your heart from the inside out. Your life from the inside out. That he'll give you his life that he poured out on the cross to save. That he'll give you forgiveness with his father. The life, his life, and ultimately life to come. If you are a Christian today, this right here is easy. You've already made this choice. And as soon as we, we lay out God and money, in your heart immediately something cries out and says, I want God. I want Him. He is my joy. He is my health. That My heart and my flesh and my money and my house and my car and my retirement and everything might fail me. But He is my joy and He is my strength. With the psalmist, your heart cries out. You've made that decision. But since then, strings. You started tying yourself to things in the world again. And today my, my encouragement is just cut those strings. Be free and start tying, make it every day, make it tie a new string to a heavenly thing. Make an investment in the kingdom. Tether your heart to God's kingdom, to what is eternal. Every day we can make a new investment, we can tie a new line and we can cut any lines that hold us back. Use your possessions to encourage, to comfort, to help and to love your neighbors. Use your job, work your job, but use it to glorify God. And to help your neighbors, use your time, your house, your dinner table. Use everything that God gave you for his kingdom and you will be happier and you will be more free and you will experience life like Christ. Every dollar we spend ties a new line and we can decide where we're going to tie it to. I want to leave you today with a video. Uh, this video, I, I just have to warn you, it's not a Christian video. Sarah McLaughlin, who is distinctly not Christian, but in it, I watched it and I was really convicted about how we think about money. Is it something that we can spend on ourselves? Every dollar we spend can have eternal significance. Every dollar we spend can make a difference, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Let's watch the video. Indeed. Sarah McLaughlin is a prophet. Our world is on fire, and it is more than we can handle. But by the grace of God, we can use every dollar we make and invest it in other people's lives, not just their physical needs, but we can take out the gospel to a world that desperately needs it and make an eternal difference. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and His mercy. He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Go in peace.